Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing okay. Wherever you happen to be, I have a great episode for you. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today, I am going to be in conversation with author Tanya James. Her new novel out this week on Knopf is called Loot. It's basically an omniscient narrator who's intruding on the story from time to time that is not objective. And it's kind of like me reminding you that I'm I'm in the room here with you and I'm not neutral about this history and I, I have some opinions. And I found that really fun. I'd never done that in a novel before, in a story. I think that was in large part the fun for me. Okay, that was Tanya James. Her new novel is called Loot, out this week from Knopf. Loot is a work of historical fiction set in 18th century India, England, and France. It is about a very gifted young man in India who is a remarkable woodcarver. His name is Abbas. He comes from a humble background and his work happens to come to the attention of Tipu Sultan, the ruler of the kingdom of Mysore in southern India. And I should mention that Tipu Sultan is an actual figure in history. He was known as the Tiger of Mysore And in the novel, he hires Abbas, this young man, this woodcarver, to create an automaton in the shape of a giant tiger attacking a British soldier. Abbas is a fictional character. It's not an actual person from history. So it's historical fiction. It's a mix. And as we make our way through the narrative, Abbas ends up working with a French clockmaker and inventor named Lucien Deleuze who serves in effect as his mentor and works with him to complete this automaton, which in its finished form is a piece of artwork. It's called Tipu's Tiger, and this is an actual piece of artwork that exists. You can go see it 
at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, which is to say that the actual artists who created this automaton, who created Tipu's Tiger, they are unknown to history. So part of the work that Tanya James is doing here in her new novel, Loot, is to imagine these artists and to write their story. So Tipu's Tiger is ultimately seized as a prize of war by British colonialists when they attack and loot Mysore. And this is part of the novel, which is at once a hero's quest, a love story, an adventure story, a story about the blood legacy of colonialism. And at its heart, I think it is a story about a young artist who is determined to create something that will endure. This is a remarkable novel, very carefully researched, very beautifully written, and richly imagined and totally absorbing from start to finish. Tanya James is the author of several books, including the novels The Tusk That Did the Damage and Atlas of Unknowns, as well as a story collection called Aerograms. Her fiction has appeared in a variety of publications, including Granta, Guernica, One Story, and the Kenyan Review. It was so nice to meet her and to get to talk with her about this new novel of hers, and I'm very happy to be able to share the conversation with you guys right now. So, here we go. This is my conversation with Tanya James, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Loot. This rarely happens to me, but I usually take a long time to find a title when I'm working on a book. And in this case, in my research, I found that loot has Sanskritic origins, and it means it comes from lutna, which means to plunder. And I have read that until this kind of period in time, that English didn't quite have a word that could encapsulate the extent of theft and of things being taken. And so they needed a new word. And so they took loot from Lutna. But I loved that learning that and it immediately, it, it, it not only worked on a, on the level of meaning, but it had a kind of sharp contemporary quality. Like I find the one word monosyllabic kind of title to be very, it just somehow, it just suggested a tone to me that there was, that this was not going to be a kind of romantic portrayal of colonial times, that there's, this is going to be an anti-colonial, anti-colonialist novel. At least that's what I wanted. But I agree with you. I feel like stumbling on a word like that, it felt like a talisman. And every time I just had, every time I thought about it, it immediately conjured up not only just these kind of, these interesting layers of meaning, but also a kind of feeling, um, a kind of direct kind of confrontation with history in a way. And just to be clear, the title of the book came to you after you had already written it? Like you had the full manuscript or no? No, I usually that's what happens to me. I, I finish and then I'm like kind of searching around and looking for a title. This came along in the research before I really started writing. And I just, I just, that just became the title of every file, you know, every draft. Um, so yeah, that was pretty early on. So you had it. And it yeah. was kind of like, I mean, it, it kind of functions as a, a North Star in a way, mm-hmm. or it, I mean, I'm sure that isn't it weird how like a title, and in this case, a one word title, can shape an entire text in some su- like sub you know subtle but deeply meaningful way. 
Yeah, I I have never I don't usually think in terms of theme much when I'm writing. And not that, you know, th- that a book has to have one theme, but it I f- do find it helpful. I like that word north star. It's something that it just just having something to kind of work toward. It it just it just also there's a kind of certainty to the one word title that I think so much of writing a novel or drafting a novel is trying to trick yourself into feeling like you have the authority to write about this subject matter. And I think historical fiction is something I don't necessarily feel a lot of authority about. I, I, I've maybe written one story that was set in a different time. And for a long time, I was just doing research and being like, I don't know if I can, how am I going to write a novel that's set in an English country house, or how am I going to write a novel, a passage that's takes place on a ship? I, it, just all these kind of, you know, I had a lot of uncertainty about it, but it was helpful to have a very kind of powerful title. Well, I'll tell you, when I was reading this book, it repeatedly occurred to me that you gave yourself a huge task. It was like, oh my God, like, how did she do this? <laughs> And I got to confess, too, that uh, like this history of Tipu Sultan and, uh, you know, the automaton, all that kind of stuff. I did not even realize that it was actual, you know, actually drawn from real history Mm -hmm. until I started like Wikipedia off to the side as I was reading. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk to you about the origin story of this novel, like its creative genesis for you. And then I want to get into the process because I think people listening who are writerly or just, you know, interested in books and how they're put together will benefit from hearing it because this was a big task, I have to imagine. Like this is a heavy lift. Yeah. Yeah. I never set out to write a heavy lift novel. I always set out with the ambition of writing something sort of slim and sleek and will take me a year less hopefully and <laughs> <Right>. it never <laughs> happens i just it things just grow but i i had thought i was writing my ambition initially was to write an a heist novel like a a novel in which two characters are trying to get this automaton back and um they're in this english country house and i knew i thought this will be the shape of the novel it will be this house a very narrow period of time but then the more I thought about the maker of the automaton, or the more I thought about motivation, I was thinking about like, what kind of person would do this? And then I got very interested in the artist or who he might have been. I couldn't think of anybody else who would care enough about it, really, as an object, because it's it's just wood. It's kind of strange, but um, it didn't have any monetary value. But I just thought it would have value, perhaps, to the person who made it. And so I kind of then... I kept thinking I need to go back and I kept kind of, I kept thinking I need to start at the beginnings of this person and how this thing might've changed his life um, and how he would have maybe began to think of his destiny as being connected to the destiny of this object. Okay. So that's I, I, I want to, yeah. I, I just want to interrupt because for people listening, I think we need to draw this object, let people know what is an uh, automaton and what is the automaton in question yeah. that this book is so much about? Yeah, it's so it's a six foot long wooden tiger that's mauling the throat of a English soldier. And um, back in the day when it worked, you could 
you could turn a hand crank and the tiger would grunt and the soldier would moan in agony. And there's a, there's an organ inside the body of the tiger. So you could have a little soundtrack in the background. And it's really, I, I found it in a book and I just thought this is so, I thought it was kind of, it was irreverent and it was kind of absurd. It, it, it was, it, it reflected the deep contempt that this ruler, Tipu Sultan, had for the British. And I had never seen anything, any work of art from that time that that was so honest about their sort of disgust and resistance to colonial rule. And I thought that was really powerful. I mean, it's still in the V&A Museum, the Victorian Albert Museum in London. It's one of their most popular exhibits. So that's that's what that object was. But I don't know who made it. There's no record of who made it. And so I decided to kind of come up with a whole, a different kind of set of characters, a French man who's responsible for the interior, the mechanics, and then a, a local woodcarver who's kind of pulled in to do the exterior. Okay. And was the... The actual automaton, was it the like point of genesis for this book? Yes. I was look I was reading a book called Edison's Eve and it was all about the history of automata, but mostly focused in Europe. So um, these automatons were really popular in the sixteen hundreds and seventeen hundreds. And um, there are like really sophisticated ones. Like there's one by this French guy, Boncasson, who who created what is called, are we allowed to curse on here? Oh, yeah. It's called a shitting duck, um, a pooping <laughs> duck. And it would eat food and then poop the food. And people thought it was digesting the food when actually it was just stuff lodged in its butt that would drop out every once in a while. But it, it was really, you know, remarkable at that time. It looked very real. Um, there's another one where a woman would play a flute and she looked very real. So these are sophisticated and, and kind of alarming to people in a similar way that AI is alarming to us now, but that, you know, people were very worried that, that, you know, we're going to be replaced, we're playing God, and we're going to be replaced by this, these proto robots. This was the only automaton I'd ever read about that was, um, you know, originated in India. And um, not as sophisticated, not as realistic, you know, not as realist as the other ones were. But I was, I was just attracted to it. I, I don't even know why I was so attracted to it. But it was probably in part because I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. Uh, well, me neither. And I went online as one does and was on YouTube watching, I think some sort of, you know, expert in antiquities play, like actually turn the crank on that thing yeah. and you could hear the sound or at least some of the sounds that it, that it would make, but pretty sophisticated and beautifully yeah. carved. And I kind of like how, like you say, it's a, uh, it's subversive. Yeah, that's especially a good one. when you take into account its historical context. The fact that Tipu Sultan, this ruler of Mysore, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, commissioned it. Yes, yeah. He he had a a similar kind of looking thing on the on the butt of a gun. It was like the sights was that structure that little. Uh, it was like a little bronze sculpture of a tiger eating a British soldier, and so this thing. People speculate that this thing was based on that that tiny little sculpture, I guess. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career. 
a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So how much knowledge did you have of 18th century India and the, you know, this colonial struggle prior to writing this book? Like you start with the automaton or automaton, I keep Mm -hmm. mispronouncing it, but uh, you start with that object, you get curious about who made it. There is no record of authorship or, or, you know, who the artist is. Your imagination gets going. And then do you start to poke around into the history of the time and learn all about this? Or was this something that you had a background in prior? No, I, I actually, I don't have any background in this period. I feel like I don't, I, I, I'm not great at historical research. I find it really dense. I mean, there's certain historians I really enjoy reading their work because they're, they have a kind of novelistic approach almost where the way they think about I mean, even just the voice is just more interesting. But a lot of the things I was reading were like travel logs of the time by British people or British officials and really kind of boring to me and also sometimes annoying and condescending and which is, you know, a product of the time. But yeah, I don't I don't consider myself an expert of, of that period at all. And and that's part of part of the allure and part of the fear and I, I feel like that combination of feelings is is a good thing at the start of writing something. When I I don't know if I can get away with this, but I'm gonna. But I, I I can't help but try. Well, one of the things that this book did for me, and which any book that like implicates history or just like a work of straight history will do, especially when I'm coming to it cold and it's telling me things that I literally had no idea like happened, which is often is like you say, just how dense and rich history is Mm. like this world that you're portraying and the characters that you're, you know, populating this story with some of whom uh, were real and some of whom are invented. I was just like, wow, I can't believe I never knew about any of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, you know, and it happens over and over again. It's so, it's really cool to see. I think maybe like you're saying, it's, you know, it's great when somebody has a real narrative gift, uh, you know, who is a straight historian and who's writing a history and can deliver it in a novelistic way. But in some ways it's, it's more fun and more illuminating to read a work of fiction that gets into this period and is able to pick up where maybe the facts stop. Yeah. And to, you know, deliver via the imagination kind of a, I don't know, like a, just a richer and more dimensional vision of what this time entailed. And the character of Abbas, who is the, I think the hero of the book, this woodcarver, this kind of, I guess you call him like what, a peasant woodcarver? Mm-hmm. 
from India who is kind of called up to the big leagues (laughs) to work with this French inventor a character who I also loved in his rendering, you know, in the rendering that you did, his name's Lucien Deleuze. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, but just, first of all, his uh, orthodonture or his just the dental hygiene of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I could not, could not help but want to get this guy some Listerine and like some dental floss. <laughs> That's right. But uh, yeah, he was kind of, but he was like also delightful and kind of boozy and I think had his heart in the right place and had, you know, had a good brain on him. So I love the interplay between Lucien Deleuze, the Frenchman, and Abbas, this uh, this brilliant, super gifted woodcarver artist from India, who you decided are the creators of this automaton. Mm-hmm. And I think there was among like what art historians, there was some, at least some something resembling consensus that the automaton bore the marks of a French and Indian collaboration, right? Like how much certainty yeah. is there? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I, I think because um, the, the, that the interior mechanism had been something conce- could only be ha- have been conceived by a French presence in, in Mysore. And Tipu Sultan was so, he was very much a visionary in terms of, he understood that in order to compete with European powers, he had to kind of bring in um, European clockmakers and um, engineers, and so it made sense that that the interior resembled a lot of what was being made in France, and the exterior, the style of it, is Mysorean. Okay, that's well. I should just say, incidentally, another thing that I got curious about while I was reading this book was clockmaking. Mm. Just the incredible intricacy. I still don't understand how it works. I don't know if you figured it out, but I need to get online. I need to go to Wikipedia and learn how like clocks from this period worked, all those little gears and, you know, but required like, you know, for the time you had to be basically like a master builder, master coder, I guess would be the Mm -hmm. corollary, you know, somebody who really understood how to put things together in a very intricate and sophisticated way. And I want to talk about this issue of authorship because I think this is at the heart of the book, who owns a piece of art. Mm -hmm. I read that you went to Mont Saint-Michel in France, up in Normandy, that beautiful, what is it? Like a, it's like a chapel on an island. It's like an abbey. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just gorgeous. I mean, if anybody doesn't have a visual frame of reference, it's worth uh, Googling Mont Saint-Michel, but you were there and went into a room where the stones bore the initials or the names of the people who placed them, I believe. Yeah. Which distinguished that room because other rooms, there were no such markings. And I just love to hear you talk about being there and seeing that and how it related to your book for you. Yeah. I, I, in all the other rooms, those, these big cubicle stones that are laid in the floor and they're blank. And in this one room, all the stones were turned in such a way that you could see those initials on each and every stone. It could have been the carver's initials or it could have been the workshop initials. But I just thought this can't be an accident because it's every stone. And it felt like it was, it, it, it called to some very human impulse to want to be seen and remembered or to leave something behind of yourself and 
you know, that goes back all the way to the caves of Lascaux and people put handprints on the walls, that there's something about the act of making something that yearns to be shared and connected, like you yearn for, I mean, at least that's what I, that's what I, one of the things I need in order to make art is to know that there's some person who's going to consume it and connect to it in some way, it, you know, and um, that I thought that room was almost as amazing as the Abbey itself because it just felt so human and it felt so recognizable to me. And I, I felt just a sense of wonder in that room. And I, it made me want to think about um, all of these people we've, we don't, we'll never know, we'll never know anything about and probably ex- people who expected to be forgotten, but yet wanted some power over the grave, some, some sense that they of some way of touching immortality. And that was perhaps their way. I mean, I'm probably projecting somewhat too, but I, I just thought it was really magical, that room. I'll tell you this. If I moved one of those stones, put them in the, you know, put them in Mont Saint-Michel, I'd be carving my initials in that too. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> just just yeah. like the, the victory of actually getting that labor done. I mean, that's like, that's another thing, you know, you get into history and you start to look at like really old, beautiful buildings like that. And to imagine, like the pyramids, you know, would be a, maybe an obvious example, but to imagine their construction in the absence of mechanized yeah. help yeah. is uh, astonishing. And like the number of people who died building these things, mm-hmm. like there people die building like stadiums today with cranes mm-hmm. and all the stuff that we have to, you know, help us. And one can only imagine that it was that much worse for people in, in you know, olden t- in olden days. So. Yeah. I don't know. I just think, and I think too about the people who are commissioned to build this beautiful artwork for some sort of monarch or ruler and who don't really have any kind of recognition, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all built, it's all meant to what reflect the glory of the state and the leader or whatever, rather than to maybe reflect the skill and the artistry of the artist. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So it's thankless in that way. I guess you get paid, you know, and you might get like a nicer bed than you would have otherwise had if you're Abbas, but I don't know how much glory you get as the artist doing that kind of gig. (laughs) Yeah. I, and, and yeah, I imagine that every time you pass that thing, that even that private knowledge that you're part of it is, you know, it's something I, I, I imagine that to be the case too. I mean, in this day and age, there would be lots of selfies taken. I mean, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd be oh, yeah. there with the tiger, you know. But <laughs> Selfie stick out, yeah. Of course, of course. <laughs> so you get to a certain point, I think, in the writing of this, or I think early on, if I have it right, if I have it correct, where you sent a couple of chapters to your agent, Nicola Raji. Am I pronouncing mm-hmm. that right? Yep. And Nicole's response, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, was if you stop writing, I'll handcuff you to your keyboard. Yes. That's so correct. you you were uncertain and didn't quite know if you had something, and then you sent it to your agent and she confirms. And I assume she would she would not confirm if she felt like it wasn't happening. So Yeah. Yeah, she's she's honest. So that must have been nice. It was great. I I mean I I usually don't do that. I don't like to send work to people whose opinions I care about that's not finished. Like it, at least that it's not in a whole, 
I don't send partial things. I feel this kind of anxiety about wasting people's time. And, you know, so I, I usually, I've never done that before with her. I've only ever sent her finished drafts and I, I want feedback, but I feel pretty solid about it. In this case, I had been working on different projects that weren't going anywhere. And I was in a sort of uncertain period of my life. And as a writer, I just, I just was not as decisive as I had thought myself to be until that point. And so I wrote a couple chapters of this book and um, her email, I printed it out and I put it on my bulletin board behind my computer. And I really feel like I tell students this, that just having one person as your kind of book cheerleader just gives you a reason to keep going. Even if you may go down all kinds of wrong paths. And I went down some very wrong paths with this book, but at least I had that that encouragement early on. And that, I don't know, it, it really did help me in a way that I, I didn't, I, I understand now why, why it's helpful to share things sometimes that are still in progress. It, I guess it depends a little bit on your emotional state, but it, it kind of clarified something for me very early on and, and gave me a momentum that I don't know that I would have had. And it was the first couple of chapters that you shared? I actually had written, uh, I had initially thought the structure would be leaping back and forth in time. So it would be uh, India, France, like so India with Abbas, who's the woodcarver, and then France with Jean, who is his sort of partner, uh, eventually in the novel when they go to the country house and they're trying to take the, get the tiger back. But um, and, and we should say, you should say it's Jean, it's, the, it's a woman. Yes, yes, John. Okay. Yeah. Not not John. I think people might miss here. So I just yeah. want to clarify. This is like kind of the romantic yes. story of yes. the book. Jean. J E H A N N E. So like it's like Jean, I guess. But um I was saying Jahan, but I mean Well, that's know. her name too. So oh, I, I have a hard time figuring out which one to say. But Jahan was her name when she was in India. And then oh. when she moves to France, they change it to Jean to kind of Frenchify it, I guess. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's good to know. I'm like, I speak mediocre French, so I would have messed it up. <laughs> Same here. Um, so first time ever writing uh, historical fiction, you send these couple of chapters to your agent and you get some really good affirmation that kind of keeps you going. Uh, I've read where you said that this was the most fun you ever had writing a novel. So for as big of a leap as you took and as big of a task as you gave yourself and as much uncertainty as there was embedded into the process, it was also the most fun. Yes. And I think because there was a bit of mischief to it, I felt like I was being a little bit, I think mainly it had to do with the voice. I, I remember on one of your recent podcasts, you had Gina Frangello talking about editorial omniscience as a point of view. And um, I hadn't realized that's what you call it, but that it was the point of view I was using. And it was so fun. It, it's basically an omniscient narrator who's intruding on the story from time to time and kind of maybe commenting on a character, maybe on their future, maybe it's just a different narr narratorial presence that is not objective. And it's kind of like me reminding you that I'm, I'm in the room here with you and I, I'm not neutral about this history and I, I have some opinions and I found that really fun. I'd never done that in a novel before in a story I think that was in large part the fun for me. Well, there's another aspect to writing historical fiction that I want to touch upon. 
because there are different ways to skin the cat. Like there are historical writers of historical fiction like Hilary Mantel, who are sort of uh, heralded for their historical accuracy and like the fine brushstroke detail and like period detail and all that kind of stuff. There is certainly some of that in loot, but uh, there is also an approach where you're building something that is closer to mythology as opposed to trying to render a story that feels like, you know, close witness to history. Like it's kind of a blend of the two, but do, do you know what I'm talking about? Like that's, oh, yeah. that's what you're up to here. It's kind of more, when you talk about that point of view and you talk about those narrative intrusions and the fun that you were having and the mischief of it, that's the mythology part, right? Yes. Yeah. I, so let me tell you about a big misstep. I, <laughs> to, to, Please, with this yeah. novel um i initially halfway through the novel a boss died and he there was like a he was like a ghost presence he was not human anymore and it was mainly because i couldn't imagine i couldn't imagine a reader buying the fact that this guy low class woodcarver would end up having all these adventures i was like well i have to make him not human or something i have to and also i really like you know Ghost Fiction's Beloved is amazing, which is historical and supernatural. But I gave it to Reader and she was like, this, I do not understand this ghost thing. Does it make sense here? Um, and I think, I think I just had to sort of change my way of thinking about the novel, that it's not, it's not necessarily a realist novel, that it's more, it's, it is and it isn't, but it's more in the tradition of the picaresque where someone is having way more adventures than the typical, your average person. And once I kind of released myself from this expectation that I have to make things plausible and um, make it so that the reader, you know, is going to believe it. I think, I think part of what I'm hoping that the, that makes the reader believe in this is the authority of the voice. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, I hope that's what's happened, but I, 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 I do think thinking about books like Washington Black by S.C. Adugian. I don't know if you've read it, but it begins as with a slave, an enslaved boy in Barbados on a Barbados plantation. And then he's freed. And you think usually with a slave narrative, the trajectory is from, you know, enslaved to free. But then he goes on to have all these amazing adventures and he becomes an artist and a botanist and he goes as far as Antarctic. And I just thought, oh, you can do that. It's just that we don't necessarily see narratives like this, like um, of people of color, people who were lived under such harsh circumstances, but that doesn't mean it, it can't be possible um, within the frame of, of a novel. And so I kind of love the idea of letting somebody who might not, we might not, we might not usually attribute all these kinds of adventures to let him be, let him have it, let him have the romance, let him have the, the adventure at sea. That was kind of fun for me the, the big get in a you know on a bicycle i can see it all his lovely little like romantic life in france <laughs> <laughs> it's like such a nice like fairy tale for him yeah. and deserved and i uh i want to talk about like a, a like i think a point to make with respect to writing and being a creative person generally that is worth underlining is this fact that you went down this wrong path where you killed the hero of the book and then realized that you shouldn't have. It is so easy 
for people reading a finished product to assume that it was all sort of there mm -hmm. from the jump and that the writer delivered it, you know, it was yeah. sort of channeling this thing kind of, uh, you know, whole cloth. And that's not the case, you know, like, first of all, how long did it take you to write this book? I started in 2018. I started thinking about it right before my second son was born. So that was 2018. And then I finished it in 2020. I don't know. It must have been 21 or 22. 22, probably. I think that, that feels fast to me. I feel like I am a fast writer. I think that I don't, I've, I don't think that that means I'm better or a good writer, but I, I just think that I'm fast once I have kind of an idea. I, I, I'm, but, but it took a couple of failed books before that to kind of get to this place. How, like, what's your work schedule? Just out of curiosity. Like, if you're fast, does that mean you're writing, like, are you working eight-hour days, four hours? Like, what does it look like for you well, to get to get the writing done quickly? I wake up when I'm inside of a work and I feel, like, good about it and I, I, I understand what I'm doing. I will wake up at 5.30 and um, I will work from 5.30 to whenever 7.30. And that's probably the best the most active time of day for my mind. And I also teach at George Mason University. I teach two days a week. And so those days I'm not really doing a whole lot on my novel, but I still, an academic gave me a piece of advice early on. She said, the first, at least just the first 30 minutes of the day, try to devote that to your creative work or your research. You know, that's, you know, her, she was not a writer. So what she worked on was called research, but that, that just asserts the priority of that work where you want to put your creative energy. And so that is the, you know, so the non-teaching days, I will maybe write for a total of four hours total. And then on the teaching days, I might just get, you know, the two hours in the morning. Okay. Yeah. And you know what, like I, what I find and what I've heard repeatedly, you don't really need that much more than, like how many people can write well beyond four hours in a day? I feel like yeah. you'd, it becomes a case of diminishing returns because your energy just flags and you're, it takes like so much focus and there's only so much per day I find that one can give to a book before you just better, you're better off letting it be until you've slept and can come back at it with a fresh mind. Oh, totally. Yeah. You need, the brain needs to kind of like decompress in some way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, unless like the only, only other way that I've heard of people doing it where they might work, you know, some sort of insanely long day is to break it up and like go for like a long run or something in the middle. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. But yeah. I don't know who you got, you have to have time to do that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Uh, but I want to talk a little bit more about historical fiction and to discuss, I think there was a story, like this is not, loot is not truly the first time you've delved into this territory. It's the first time you've written a novel that is yeah. historical fiction. But you had touched upon this kind of work in a story that you had written that I believe took you 23 drafts before you sort of had an epiphany about it. And I think it's important to discuss. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to quote you, I believe. So again, if I'm misquoting, <laughs> feel free to, to let me know. But you say, the first time I wrote historical fiction, in this case, a short story, it took me 23 drafts to learn something crucial. And that thing is, I only need to include the aspects of history that matter to my point of view character. 
with this story being in the editorial omniscient, I don't know how much that applied, but I do think that like maybe you really focused in on Abbas and maybe to a lesser extent Lucian. Like, mm -hmm. did, did that carry over to loot that insight? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think. I, I departed from that a little bit in that I liked the way the editorial omniscient could give us a bit of the future of characters, the things that they don't know are going to happen, just just little touches of that here and there. But I did, you know, especially in the research stages, it can feel like you the, all that knowledge you're acquiring, it, it, at some of it, you just, you just kind of want to let the reader know what is going to happen 20 years from now. It's just kind of thrilling to have all of that knowledge at your fingertips. And I just felt like I, I wish I could share this stuff. Um, but, but also all that research can be kind of intimidating and it's a way, it became a way for me to approach the research specifically because I was taking notes, but I was especially trying to think about like, what are the details that this character would notice? Because the details that I would notice if I were walking around Mysore at that time he would he wouldn't even occur to her occur to him perhaps that this is important you know but like what are the things that would matter to him and a lot of that is informed by his emotional state and what he's concerned with and what's in his what is in his direct kind of physical presence so so it's just it it, it was a helpful way to kind of tackle like vast swaths of history i mean in this case you know i could i knew okay, I know he's going to be at the siege of Serangapatam, which is when the British East India Company basically invaded the capital city of Mysore and um, looted and plundered and destroyed everything. And I knew he would be there. So I knew that I needed to research as much as possible and spend more time researching that. And But other events, not really, not so much. So it kind of helped me to be somewhat more efficient in my approach to kind of the research process. Well, and also to not get overwhelmed because that's yeah. the thing. I mean, like reading it, I'm having like uh, like a, a feeling of empathetic overwhelm on like on your behalf. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> this poor woman. <laughs> As like I'm because I know a thing or two about like trying to tackle a novel. It's never easy, but when you have this much ground to cover and this much research to do, I can imagine that there could be those feelings of overwhelm. And by narrowing down your field of vision to a protagonist and to considering this broad swath of history through that field of vision alone as your responsibility makes it easier. And then I can also imagine there are other things you sort of had to trick yourself into, like, I'm just going to write this chapter or, you know, I'm just yeah. going to, I'm just going to go do this research today and try to learn about such and such. And then, you know, you stack enough of those days and eventually it starts to come together. But I think if you can, if you start to think of a project like this, like in the main, you start to think of it from a big picture perspective, I could easily see it becoming scary. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I didn't, I think it's helpful that I didn't know how fast it was going to get in terms of the different, the different sort of subcultures and things like um, how even one constructs an automaton like that, you know, that itself, it's, it's just like a kind of small thing, but I, it was impossible. I still don't understand how that thing was made. And I, I went to different people who still make automata, automatons, and they didn't know how it was made. And I, I found this one 
article that was published like a hundred years ago where some guy took it apart and figured it out and I still couldn't figure it out. So I, I kind of understood at some point that I just have to sort of fake it, that, that it's not really about convincing you that I am an expert, but it's more about trying to inhabit the character and their relationship to the craft or whatever it is, their relationship to seafaring, how they feel about it. Like if you, if someone were to poll me and you and another person about writing, how we feel about writing, we would say different things about what we love about it and what we hate about it and what we find frustrating about it. And so I just kept trying to keep the character in mind in terms of even just researching um, whatever thing it was, whether it was clockwork or wood carving, you know, just trying to think about what, what their feeling toward it was rather than how to build a clock. No, that's like, that's a really good insight, I think. And I should add that I was totally fooled, never doubted it for a second, <laughs> while also adding that I'm very easy to fool. So I don't know, <laughs> know how good you should feel about that. I don't but know I, about the clock makers. I don't know if but, they're going to buy I mean, this. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure somebody with specialized knowledge, but I have to believe that anybody with specialized knowledge into the construction of clocks or in particular automatons, that's a very small number of people in the world. It's <laughs> true. But- I guess like another question related to the writing of it has to do with seeding a need to have control of every aspect of the story. Hmm. Because like you say, there, there's a level of humility that goes into writing any book, but especially when you're dealing in history, like, you know, you could spend 20 years on this book and maybe have come away with a richer tapestry. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know how practical that is, you know, for a writer who's trying to create books and make a living and all that kind of stuff. So I'm interested to know how you might have squared that for yourself, because I have read, again, that you are a bit of a control freak <laughs> um, and a Good planner. Research, I, yeah, I yes, think you refer to yourself as a bit of a control freak and yeah. a like a, a very big someone who's into planning. Yes. So were there internal battles that you were fighting along those lines where at some point you had to say, okay, I've done enough and this is going to be okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, where did you, where did you learn to kind of like step away? (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, I remember what you're talking about has me remembering a class I took in college with Gish Jen and I'd written a story and she she was like, this is good, but I could tell that you are in control of every moment of this story, that you knew what you were going to do before you even did it. And I just like, are you a magician, a mind reader? Like, how do you even know that? I didn't say that. But she said to me, she gave me this advice, was, which was, you have to let the story discover itself. And I was like, that sounds great, but how do you even do that? And I think it's just what she, what what the note under the note i think is learning to live with uncertainty which i feel like for me has come with age and just having blind faith that things will come together but i i still i so you know back then i used to like outline short stories and stuff i i i don't do that anymore but i do think that um for me kind of jotting down what's what's going to be happening what i think is going to happen over the next chapter to in a few chapters is just it just helps me keep going and um i think about this thing that deborah eisenberg said about resistance and how 
I'm going to butcher the way she put it, but she's basically talking about resisting the first impulse that comes to mind. And I think, you know, as a control freak, self-described control freak, sometimes I just have to write that thing that I had planned to write. And I have to see that it's, I have to realize that it's not, it's not alive and I have to do it. I have to walk through that door before I can even resist it. Like it's not for me, it's not necessarily about trying to not be a control freak because that's kind of what I am, but it's, I, I acknowledge that I am somewhat controlling. This is why I'm making these like lists of things that are going to happen, but then trying to resist being open to resisting the, these and recognizing that they're just the first impulse and that something else could be coming along if I go back and revise and rewrite and sort of just being flexible too along the way. Well, and open to serendipity, you know, I feel like in my experience, maybe the thing that you get, like you don't necessarily get better from book to book. Well, I guess hopefully you do, but maybe one of the things that you do get better at in a concrete manner is accepting that uncertainty and learning to sort of live to fight another day. There are days at the keyboard where things just aren't happening, right? right? You're just like, ugh, or you just, you hit this kind of impasse in a novel or you travel a good ways down a road that turns out to be inadvisable, yeah. <laughs> like the Abbas death, you know, and <laughs> yeah. to have to like hit a U-turn like that, especially if you spent significant time on it or you were really married to that creative idea, it can be strangely traumatic. I mean, mm-hmm. not to get precious about it, but you know what I'm saying? Like we can be a little dramatic writers, you know, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. and you can start to be like, oh my God, you know, like it's all for naught and, you know. Maybe one of the things you get better at from book to book is learning not to trust certainty and to maybe, yeah, recognize a good idea when it comes, be willing to follow it, even if that idea might deviate from your well-laid plans. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And I think I have perhaps maybe something, I don't know if you agree, but Maybe something that gets better with age too is bouncing back from the traumatic reaction of like, oh, you hate this, and I it, it doesn't it doesn't set me back then like a week and have me questioning myself as a writer and you know I I I kind of if doesn't feel great feels bad, but then I kind of more quickly switch into the mode of like well, now what? Yeah, so there's I, a great yeah. a great line from uh, I think it's Kingsley Amos that I've always remembered where he's like. Uh, a bad review spoils my breakfast, but it doesn't spoil my lunch. Mm, <laughs> so that's go. it. Yeah. So, that's but, what you I'm know, shooting for. That's me too. Yeah. You and me both. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about research because any work of historical fiction requires it probably more so than other types of fiction. And that includes not just like library research, but you actually got on an airplane and traveled to places and laid eyes on them, which, you know... I've talked to, I want to say I wrote, I talked to an author who wrote like a wonderful book of stories, some of which took place in Africa. And I was like, so how was the trip to Africa? Mm. And he was like, never been, just, <laughs> just Googled it. You know, I was like, whoa. <laughs> Google and, Earth is very I mean, effective, I guess. I was never in doubt. I thought that this guy had been like, had a Fulbright, you know, like I was yeah. like, this is it. He's lived there. Nope. <laughs> so I think it can be done. But like mm. for me, I like to go see a place if I'm going to write about it. And I think I have to imagine it would be especially the case. I haven't done it. But like to write historical fiction, to, to go and be there 
and to sort of investigate and see some historical sites and get a real feel for the place. That was essential for you, right? I thought it would be, but then because of the pandemic, I couldn't go to India for a long time. So it wasn't until the book was almost finished that I was able to go. And um, it was very haunting. It was um, Sri Rangapatna, which is a capital city of Tipu's uh, kingdom of Mysore. It was so much smaller than I thought it was. In my mind, it just seemed huge, but it was a fort city. So by nature, you know, it's going to be smaller. It has to be a smaller thing that he can protect. I don't know. I still think it was helpful for me to go. I I liked being able to walk from the place where he was shooting his rifle to the place where he fell. I liked seeing the trees and listening to the... I think one thing that was very important to me was the just the sound of the, not the sound, but the, the sort of flora, you know, of the place, just seeing how far, how short a distance it was for him to walk from this palace to this other place. I don't know if it meant a lot to the, it would mean a lot to the reader. I don't know that it would have been less convincing had I not gone. But I think for me personally, I'm kind of like you, I just feel like I need to be able to to say that I went there. It's just there's something about my own relationship to the material that feels more profound if I can say that I did go. At the same time, this is 200, this is a place we're 200 years removed from what it was like back then. So really, it really, I don't know. Again, I don't know that it really would have mattered if I went or not, um, because it looks nothing like what it must have looked like in its glory days. It's just ruins. But it it somehow emotionally for me, I felt I needed to go. Yeah. I mean, I think you're pretty safe. It's like you bet your book would only come under harsh scrutiny, maybe from people who are experts in automatons and <laughs> like 19th century Indian history, you know, yes. you would have like a really in-depth knowledge of that stuff. And I think that's instructive, you know, this is a work of fiction and it's a work of the imagination. And I never doubted it. Just, to, yeah. just so you know, I never like was like, wow, this feels unreal. And I have to believe too that, it, you know, maybe there are some discrepancies, like the discrepancy in scale that you described where you get there and you're like, oh, this is smaller than it was in my imagination. But I bet too, there might've been a couple of little things where you're like, oh, I got pretty close, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. right? A little yeah. bit of that too. I mean, I think part of the reason why it felt smaller to me is because I am a creature of the present. So when I think of a capital city, I just think bigger, you know, I think just contemporary life is bigger than it was then. And probably to someone who's living back then, I imagine to a boss coming to that capital city, it does look like a big city. Um, So to me, I was like, well, it's not really about rendering the thing as it looks. It's about, again, I could keep saying it, but rendering the thing through the person's um, specific, you know, subjectivity. So another creative choice that I want to talk about which stays with me. It's a section of the book that stays with me. It probably always will. has to do with uh, this, this long boat journey. Mm. One of the functions that this novel performs for the reader is to dissuade them from ever wanting to travel <laughs> on a boat in the, in the 18th century style. This, uh, there's a section of the, the novel narrated by a character named Thomas Bedeker who only really factors into this section of the novel is kind of an ingenious choice to have him talk 
about this boat journey, which implicates Abbas, the the hero of the book. But you have it told from this Thomas character's perspective. Can you talk about how that arrived? It's like a diaristic mm-hmm. interlude. And at first, as a reader, I was like, okay, wait a minute, who's this guy? What's this storyline? And then there, you know, at a certain point, you know, Abbas suddenly appears. And I go, ah, and it just clicked into place. It was very well done. So mm. how did that happen for you? Like, you. how did Thomas come to be? I initially, there was no Thomas. I thought I'm going to, I got to get Abbas across the ocean, across borders. I'm going to, I'm going to write this in the same voice in the third person voice and from his perspective. And I just found it very boring. I get I don't know how you feel, Brad, in the middle of a novel, but I feel, I get antsy. I just, I don't know if the reader is bored, but I imagine they are if I'm bored, but I I think it's just temperamentally, I, I get bored being inside of the same work in terms of, you know, writing a work like that. And I just felt like I wanted some kind of disruption. I also felt like I just, I think the epistolary form can be great because it actually, in in many ways, I think requires almost less research. I mean, there is a lot of things researched in it, but a lot of, I feel like you can move across time so quickly. You can condense an entire day into just a couple of words, like this is what we did that day, moved these barrels to this other place. And I just like the efficiency of the diary form. I, and in my research, I was reading a lot of diaries and memoirs by retired ship captains and sailors and I it's just incredible to me uh what people put themselves through it was such a high risk high reward endeavor and I was so moved by the memoirs because they felt to me like he could have like made it into some kind of tall tales or whatever they but they felt earnest and true and again another way in which someone's just trying to leave something of themselves behind and so I really that character appears for such a short time but is one of the characters I came to be very attached to somehow. Yeah. I mean, I loved it. And what was the disease that felled so many people? I'm blanking. Was it scurvy, scurvy. or yeah. scurvy? Which so they pe- knew they knew how to how to um they knew that lemons and you know citrus, but but boiling it, that was something I had looked up that that sometimes ship on ships they would boil it because they they thought they were, you know, kind of trying to uh, take out the impurities of the water or something, but that that sort of made the uh, canceled out the kind of curative or properties of of um, the lemon. And to just be on a ship with that many men, <laughs> it's mostly men, right? And yeah, no running water, right? No plumbing. People it's are tough. dying and just being like buried at sea, just like yeah. thrown overboard. I mean, it's just. And like, I can imagine the sleeping quarters had to be tight. Like everybody packed into these rooms under, you know, below decks and. Yeah. And that was better... like the good, the good bed situation. Otherwise yeah. you're in a hammock on the, uh, on the deck and getting rained on or whatever. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I'd almost rather that for the fresh air, but I get it <laughs> <That's true. That's laughs> on a nice night, you know, if you're like off the coast of Africa or something, but yes. just very brutal. And, you know, you talk about reading diaries of ship captains and sort of getting inside this part of the book through that material. One of the things that you read, which I thought was interesting and which made the Tipu Sultan character make more sense was the, this, the dreams of Tipu Sultan, which is yes. his journal. Yeah. 
And I find that fascinating that such a document, such a book would exist because, you know, from somebody like him who would have a much greater chance of being memorialized anyway. But even he, (laughs) even the ruler of Mysore is like, you know what? I want my most private thoughts to be documented, (laughs) you know, not just this, uh, you know, not all these, you know, works of art that I've commissioned, not this city, you know, not these statues of me or whatever it is that existed, but also he kept a diary. Yeah. I mean, dreams are possibly the most embarrassing thing you could write down, like systematically write down every day your dream. But he was so, he believed that, you know, maybe he could read the future or some, get some sense of what was going to happen in the next battle. And and this was so constantly at the forefront of his mind. And so um, I just, I I don't think I had read anything that had his voice in it. Like sometimes I'd hear a line he said to somebody, but the fact that these were in his voice and portrayed such vulnerability um, for someone who otherwise liked to call himself, you know, the tiger of Mysore and indestructible and invincible. And, and yet there's this other side of him. I just, I just love the dream register. They're really strange dreams. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Dreams are weird. I had a weird dream. I don't usually remember my dreams, but I had a dream the other night that I was like back in my old high school. I mean, just, I never dream about stuff like that. And I ran into an old classmate of mine. And then we started talking about how much time had passed and it got emotional. And then Hmm. I woke up and I was like, maybe I should tell this person who I haven't talked to in 30 years. (laughs) I didn't do it. I was like, this is, it was too embarrassing. I was like, this person's going to think I'm insane, you know? Well, I was at my twentieth college reunion over the weekend, so it was like a ser- it was it's like a series of dreams, like just you know people who people like this who yeah you have these intense emotional like exchanges with, but yeah, I feel you. That is I, I have yet to go to a reunion. I'm too scared. I'm a chicken. I won't it do is, it. Uh, that's why I like it. Yeah, it's just going so strange. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Uh, so speaking of strange, and I think another little aspect of writing historical fiction that's really cool or can be if you implement it is this line that repeats this, this line of verse that repeats throughout the novel. It's like from a poem and it goes, were an artist to choose me for his model, how could he draw the form of a sigh? And this is a line that affects Abbas. Mm-hmm. He is affected by it, but it actually has real life connections, which I learned after the fact. Can you talk about that? Because there's something very interesting about that and also something kind of moving in the way that a work of art, like one work of art can reach across time and communicate with another work of art. Like that's super cool. Yeah. I it, That verse is, um, it's attributed to a poet named Zebunisa. She was the daughter of Aurangzeb, the Emperor Aurangzeb, and she wrote poetry and she was very cultured and sophisticated and was a patron of the arts. And then she was imprisoned. He imprisoned her because he thought she was colluding with her brother to overthrow him. And she wrote this one volume, or she probably wrote more, but the one that survives is called The Book of the Hidden One. And this verse she she wasn't at this time. She wasn't in Tipu Sultan's. Um, um, gosh, I'm forgetting the word. Um, His court or I what? I, I don't oh, think. Anyway, concubine. <laughs> no, yeah, she wasn't. Yeah. She wasn't um, 
of this time at all. But I wanted to take those lines because I, I, I wanted, I wanted um, to pull in a voice that was perhaps forgotten by a lot of people or never even heard of. I hadn't heard of her before I was doing my research, but I just liked that that layer of ongoingness to the end of the book. That 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 there are certain things in the novel that are callbacks to history that I hope kind of create a desire in the reader to keep keep kind of exploring these voices that you haven't heard of, or voices that have been forgotten, because that's, I think, one of the motifs of the novel, that who are these people that we, that these artists who are invisible to many of us now. But that verse works on him because he he just keeps thinking that that verse, even though that character is killed early on in the novel or she's exiled or something that verse is living past her life and is penetrated in his mind is continuing to kind of cycle through his mind and he's just always like how can I create something that has that power that power to kind of live beyond the span of a life do you feel like that as a writer are you trying to write a book that you hope will outlive you no <laughs> I mean I feel like I guess Abbas is more romantic than I am. He's also living in a kind of extreme and brutal time. And so maybe is thinking more about mortality than I, I mean, I think about it, but it's, you know, I, I live a pretty comfortable life, but I, I, I guess I used to work at a literary agency and it was amazing to me how many clients who, you know, there, we had these clients and we had, you know, their estates or we were in charge of their estates and people just have such a short, you know, short memory myself included, for writers who were such a big deal, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, I can't even remember who won the Pulitzer Prize, you know, 10 years ago. I, I, you know, I just, I just, I don't even, I don't have any kind of dreams of like living my work kind of living past, past me. I mean, the most I hope for is that my kids will have it. They at least will have this portrait of who I was. I think about my grandmother who's 99 and I I just long for any kind of hint of who she might have been when she was like 19 or 15 or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that's I think that's the most I hope for. Yeah, I'm kind of a fatalist about it too. Like this stuff all <laughs> goes away. And like you say, like I will be reading something in, you know, literary media and there'll be a reference to a book that like won the Penn Faulkner like three years ago. And I'll be like, wow, I never even heard of that. Or maybe <laughs> if I did, I forget. And, and it just goes to show like, on the one hand, you can think to yourself, wow, the Penn Faulkner, they won an award. Yeah. This is a big book that everybody knows about. And then on the other hand, you have a moment like that. And you're like, actually, no, it's gotta be something sort of for people who win those awards, like somebody who wins the Pulitzer, it's obviously a great honor you know, I don't want to diminish it, but I'm just saying that like, there must be at some point that realization of like, yeah, this is a great honor and it's huge for my career. And there's lots of positives that go with it, but also the average person in the street has no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. none. <laughs> yeah. I know. I was talking to someone I had met uh, over the weekend and he was telling me how he had a hard time with his first novel when it came out. And and I was like, that's shocking to me. It seemed to me that it was everywhere and getting all these kind of like uh, impressive things were happening. And and he was like, uh, you know, no, it didn't sell very well. 
And I thought, well, all of our books, do, I mean, most of us, our books don't sell very well, but the people to whom it does sell are a passionate crowd. So though we are small, I feel like, you know, readers of literary fiction are, you know, kind of, it's it's kind of a passionate group. And so though these kind of awards matter to no one else, most people, it's still, you know, I, I, I do feel like you know, these books matter to a very passionate few. And I don't well, know. But it, they work deeply on people. And like, mm-hmm. that's the thing is that like, if 5,000 people spend time with a novel and read it and enjoy it, I think the argument that I make mostly to myself, <laughs> but also on this show is that it's working at a level of depth that may be more surface level forms of media and entertainment. Uh, you know, don't, don't ever get to yeah. like a book. If it really connects with you or it really connects with a person connects at a level of depth. And I think that there's more power in that than maybe somebody sort of like passively observing a television show while they fall asleep. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It requires that... more work to read a book and to really engage with a text and to kind of do the imaginative work that it takes to create it in your mind. So, yeah. you know, we have to be satisfied with quality over quantity most of the time is what I'm saying. I think that's true. And before I let you go, you have alluded to this class reunion uh, a couple of times that you just went to. Um, We share something in common. Not that we both went to Harvard. (laughs) I think you went to Harvard. I went to the university of Colorado. Um, Not quite as, uh, you know, esteemed, but still a good, good school. And we both studied film. Oh, really? Yes. That's how you know so much about audio stuff. Well, I don't know. I've learned all this as a matter of uh, necessity. I'm <laughs> actually one of the reasons why I gravitated toward literature, even while I was a film student. I sort of realized as I was a film student that it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. A, because of the collaborative nature of it, which I think we share, where you're like, actually, I don't like working with people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> people are terrible. Let's uh, try to, I'd rather just be alone. And then Secondly, is that I have very little facility with machines and don't mm. like, I don't like working with machines. I'm old enough that we were right on the cusp of actually loading Bolex cameras and mm-hmm. cutting actual celluloid on Same. a moviola and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, forget it. This is <laughs> tedious. I am no good at this and I don't like it. Yeah. Um, another thing that we have in common is that we both love the film, The Bicycle Thief. Oh, yeah. And Sherman's March by Ross McElwee. Uh. I read that you're a fan of that. And so I want to get into film and documentary film, I think is your particular specialty Mm -hmm. as it relates to your work as a novelist and a writer of fiction, like what has transferred over, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about loot and it seems like, well, I mean, there's obvious things like plotting and stuff, but documentary I don't know how much of a line there is, but just, you know, this education in film and then this professional life in fiction, like what is the relationship? I'm not totally sure how my experience in documentary informed the writing itself, though I do think there's something I've always been, I do think of filmmakers as being less, um, less precious about cutting things and structurally being somewhat experimental and 
just moving things around and doing things in a nonlinear way. At least the films we were studying and the the kind of style that, which was more of a kind of verite style, those that was like the style of my professors. And especially I, in documentary, you're saying yes, yeah. yeah. And I I thought maybe I didn't think I could be a filmmaker like a director because I was so bad at articulating my vision. I've gotten better at that, but I'm not very good at communicating what I want to happen or what I want the story to be. But I felt like I could be an, maybe be an editor. I thought I like that because as an editor, you just have to be a, a monastic kind of lifestyle where you kind of just do it and then you show. And, you know, so I thought maybe that was something I could do. But I've always I always liked the aspect of editing that I liked was just seeing how different scenes juxtaposed might create some kind of interesting friction. And then I, I, I was pretty, pretty good at, I think, being ruthless. And I don't know if that's carried over into my writing, but I do feel like I'm, I don't mind when someone tells me that, you know, 20 pages or whatever, however many pages is, uh, needs to go. I mean, not that I immediately agree, but I'm less emotionally attached than, well, I don't know than who, but I, I, I don't feel, I feel somewhat ruthless in terms of the editing process. Well, and I mean, with documentary film, the ratio of film shot to final product is super high. Oh yeah. Way higher than narrative film, which I, you oh, know, yeah. for people who don't do filmmaking, they might not realize, but with a documentary film, at least as I understand it, you're shooting a ton, you're yes. cutting a ton and you're finding the narrative in the cutting a lot yes. of the times. So you're not operating from a script. I mean, you might have a vague outline or some vision of what you think you want, but the best documentary films that I tend to gravitate towards feel very much like they are found in the edit. Yes, yes, very much not necessarily nonlinear and yet feel in the final product kind of undeniable in the in the in the form that they take. But yeah, I I the person I worked for after um, my MFA, I took got my MFA and then I worked on a documentary film and she had like hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage. So much of it was just getting to know it and getting to know it and getting to know it. And then and then I mean it it really is such a long painstaking process. But I also, like you, had a hard time with the tech aspects because we also cut on 60 millimeter film. I could never get my stuff to sync, like the audio <laughs> and the visual. And uh, I'm going to have just... a flashback. I'm going to start to, uh, <laughs> gonna start to quake. Uh, it was like, I just remember, yeah, I remember like barely, like just f finishing my final film, you know, my senior film for graduation and just, you know, in that, in that movieola room until like four <sighs> in the morning trying to get like I mean, this really convoluted story about it was the film ended up being in a kind of Ross McElway fashion. It was about mm. me procrastinating on my final film. And then it was like intercut with like these scenes of a gorilla at the zoo that I shot. I mean, just, you know, it's a very much <laughs> a senior film. <laughs> Get that out of the archive. It's a, hey, that is a masterpiece on par with the, uh, what is it? The tiger of, uh, What's the name of the automaton or the Tipu's Tiger? Tipu's Tiger, yeah, it is a masterpiece <laughs> on par with Tipu's Tiger, which will one day be uh, written about in a work of historical fiction. <laughs> but I have enjoyed speaking with you and uh, congratulate you on seeing this thing all the way through, and I find it inspiring. I always ask people what they're working on if they have anything else going, uh, which is a miserable question, but I must do it. <laughs> Is there anything cooking or are you kind of in between projects and just enjoying this one? 
I am in between and I I've been mulling over something in my mind that is a kind of workplace novel, but I do know that I'm not writing historical fiction next. It's gonna be research less research. Okay. A lot less. So At least say. that's my hope. I was gonna say, so you say now. Huh? <laughs> I say now. Five right. years we're gonna be talking, you'll be like, Well, I was in uh... <laughs> the twelfth century <laughs> yeah, right. is now my new thing. <laughs> I just spent a year in Egypt or you know, doing whatever. But uh, I wish you all the best on loot and all the best on whatever comes next. And uh, congratulations. Thank you so much, Brad. This was really, it's really an honor to be on your show. Thank you. All right, everybody. There we have it. That was my conversation with Tanya James. Her new novel out this week is called Loot. It is available from Alfred A. Knopf. You can find Tanya on the internet. Her website is Tanya James. She is on social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. It's a royal flush. (laughs) Uh, Once again, her novel is called Loot. It is an excellent work of historical fiction. Go get your copy right away. If you had a good experience here, if you enjoyed the program, you can support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The entire archive of this show, incidentally, is available. You can listen to it all, more than 840 episodes at this point and counting. So please support the work that I do over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get yourself another people t-shirt over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Sign up for my free once a week email newsletter. You can do that at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes, please rate this show wherever you listen. Give it a rating. If it's possible to write a quick review, please write a quick review. It helps greatly. It helps the show find new listeners. Subscribe over at YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. If you are interested in advertising on this program, you can check out the Other People Media Kit. Just go to otherppl.com. If you have feedback, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Again, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, I have a novel out. Did you know that? My latest novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to read my latest novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up on Wednesday, I believe I'm going to be in conversation with Molly Lynch. I'm not 100% sure yet, but I'm close. Molly Lynch is the author of the debut novel entitled The Forbidden Territory of a Terrifying Woman. How's that for a title? It is available from Catapult, and I'm looking forward to sharing that one with you soon. So stay tuned.